Thanks for stopping by. I am Josh, and you're at Dharma Punks NYC. Just a couple of announcements. If you'd like to join us on our three-hour gathering in person, May 22nd, Sunday, from 2 to 5 p.m. at Center Yoga in New York, you can find all the info. And if you'd like to join us, you can register there, Dharma Punks with an X NYC. And Labor Day weekend up in the beautiful Garrison Institute, uh, overlooking the Hudson River, uh, easy hour-long direct Metro North train ride from New York to the center itself, pretty much. Uh, That's from September 1st to 5th. And that in-person event you can also find out more about on our website. And if you want, you can register at Garrison's. Uh, Every morning from Monday through Fridays, Kathy leads her morning meditation, the daily pause. You can find out about that on the website. My work as a teacher, Buddhist counselor, if you'd like to support it, the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an XNYC and the PayPal buttons on the website. So that's all the announcements. Tonight, we're talking about the attainment of perhaps the most peaceful, soothing, uh, sustainable, pleasant state of mind. Why flow is so important, how to attain it, and uh, we'll then have a meditation based on early Buddhist instructions, some of the earliest teachings of the Buddha. Uh, where we'll be practicing getting into a state of flow in our meditation. You're invited to just relax, settle in, and I'm just going to jump in with tonight's topic. So all of us have what we could call an inner voice, i.e., and thoughts have a common origin. When we're very young and we're toddlers, our care takers, especially starting around the age of two to three, start relying more and more on verbal instructions. And infants repeat aloud those instructions as a way to inhibit their impulses. So for instance, a parent might say, don't run in the hall, don't uh, uh, go outside when nobody's with you, don't eat the cookie until after dinner, don't hit your sister or brother, don't, uh, don't tug the cat's tail, whatever the parent might instruct. And then the infant will, as we learned from the great Russian clinical psychologist Lev Vygotsky, the child will repeat those instructions aloud as a way to remember and direct their actions so that they don't violate or transgress upon the commands their parents have given them. So there's a period of time where children just say aloud these self-regulating thoughts, but then over time, these instructions become internalized. And so the child over time stops speaking 
the instructions allowed. And eventually, all of the instructions, all of the verbal utterances from the parent to the child, the child repeats internally. And then over time, these thoughts become self-generated, but they all have this common ancestry in regulation of behavior and impulses. So inner thought is responsible for a myriad of vital capabilities beyond inhibiting and directing our behavioral impulses, uh, i.e. what's called self-control, we can, in our minds, simulate and anticipate problems that don't exist quite yet, but we can anticipate problems. So people can visualize challenges that might crop up on for a business, for a creative project, for a trip, a journey, and so forth. And in anticipating problems, we can solve them even in our minds before they actually happen. We can also rehearse for difficult interactions. So sometimes when we have to have a difficult conversation with someone, we might actually play it out in our minds, what we might say and how they might respond. Inner thought helps us translate internal states or feelings into words that can be expressed as needs. So an adult might say to another adult, I'm feeling hungry. Let's go out and find something to eat. Or I'm feeling tired. I need to go home and get some rest. So inner thought can access uh, our internal states and can turn it into words that can instruct others how we're doing. Probably one of the greatest capabilities that inner thought can afford us is the skill of visualizing goals. We can think of things we'd like to accomplish in the future, break them down into sequential steps, and as we move through life, our thoughts can help review our progress. So that's a, a lot of benefits. Uh, however, uh, inner thought, because it creates virtual realities that are divorced from what's actually happening, takes a lot of attention, if not all of it, away from processing the experience of the world around us. Stimuli processing from the thalamus up to different regions gets shunted off into the background so that we can get lost in thought about why did this person say that to me or what's gonna happen in the future if this event happens or planning uh, some kind of interaction with someone and so on and so forth. All of that is cognition heavy and so we stop paying attention to the world around us and we start paying attention to our cognitive internal language and images. So this is fine if we use it sparingly, strategically, but not if we use it habitually because all of the inner processing, one, comes at the expense of paying attention to very often necessary tasks. We've all seen this when somebody we're talking to 
gets lost in thought about another issue and they're no longer present and they've essentially abandoned the conversation and we feel dropped. Or when somebody is at work and starts phoning it in or working on autopilot because they're ruminating about a relationship or financial issues or other concerns, they stop being people who are creative and capable and competent. And it turns out we wind up in thought, lost in thought, way, way too much. Two great cognitive uh, psychologists, Killingsworth and Gilbert, who were at Harvard, did a famous uh, study, which they gave a wonderful title, A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. And they tracked 5,000 people using a smartphone app in 83 different countries. So it was transcultural and they got over a million different samples. So this is a widespread, large clinical study. And what does it show? Well, our minds wander from what we're doing 47% of the time, almost half of waking life we're not actually focusing on what we're doing. We're simply lost in thought about something other than what is directly in front of us. Mind wandering that pulls us away from present time, external awareness is so common 47% of the time that they called it default mode operation of the brain. The brain's default mode, they decided, was not paying attention to what we're doing, not focusing on the world around us, but literally uh, refocusing internally on internal thoughts, not even body sensations, just on ideas, inner language, inner chatter. Now, maybe all of this might be fine were it not for some major, uh, uh, essentially, uh, uh, negative outcomes associated with default mode operation. The first is that we're less happy when our minds wander. The other big news about the study was that it really doesn't matter if you're doing something so much you enjoy or something you don't enjoy. A better predictor of your happiness is whether you're actually paying attention. It turns out that even when people are doing something they really like, like lying on a beach, or sitting in a, uh, a beautiful park on a beautiful day, if they wind up lost in thought, they tend to eventually wind up unhappier than if they were actually paying attention to something that they were doing that they didn't enjoy. So you're actually more likely to be happy if you're sitting in a dentist's chair being prepared for a root canal, if you're paying attention and really focused on the experience, then if you're lying on a beach and lost in thought about what's going to happen to me in the future, because it turns out, and we'll, we'll talk about a little bit about the, the circuitry of the brain involved, but one of the keys is that if we focus on inner thought, we lose the ability to flexibly zoom out and gain perspective. And our inner thought 
very quickly turns into rumination or preoccupation, intrusive, repetitive, inner dialogue. Why does it do that? Well, it turns out when we disconnect from the world around us, when we disconnect from body awareness and we just focus on thought, the same circuit that is engaged in default, default operation is also the circuit responsible to, for self-referential processing. In other words, the more we wind up lost in thought, the inevitable result is that we start thinking about ourselves, And eventually, self-referential thinking doesn't wind up anywhere pleasant. Over time, it becomes increasingly in, intrusive, repetitive, self-critical. Why is that? Well, it turns out midline cortical thinking has got direct exonic connections to your amygdala the fear processing center of your brain. So the more we're lost in thought, thinking about ourselves, the more unhappy we're going to wind up because the thoughts are going to become intrusive and repetitive, and they're going to trigger more negative emotions because they activate the emotion, the negative emotional center of the brain. This is why in severe depressive disorders, monopolar depression, one of the most obvious symptoms is an increase in self-referential thinking. People who are depressed, on average, think far more about themselves than people who are not. And people who are not depressed, they do think, but they don't get lost in repetitive self-oriented thought which is, tends to be right medial as opposed to left dorsolateral. We really like to listen to what we have to say about ourselves. Uh, Charles Fernihue, a psychologist, uh, with his studies noted that the fastest, piece, you know, the, I mean, the brain when it's caught up in self-referential thought can think upwards to 4,000 words a minute. And given the fact that people generally speak at around 150 words per minute, we think, in other words, more than 20 times faster than we speak. In fact, we can think so fast about ourselves that in the course of two hours, you can easily write the equivalent of a book not that it's a book that anyone would particularly want to read, probably not even yourself, but you can think the same amount of words that a book would take up about yourself. Ruminating thought generates emotional responses and activates the HPA axis, which is your hypothalamus, your pituitary, and your adrenal gland that all work in tandem, driven directly by the hypothalamus, and that activates stress response, releasing cortisol, which also over time, in addition to sustaining hypervigilance and negative emotions, is associated with cardiovascular disease, immune dysfunction, diabetes, and various forms of cancer. That's a long-winded way to say it's not very good for you.
the Buddha called uh, the self, the uh, ruminative thought that is intrusive and spirals out and causes suffering, Papancha. He famously said, this is how one thinks completely, inappropriately, and poorly. What was I like in the past? What's going to happen to me in the future? What's my true nature? How am I different from others? This self of mind, how will it change? How do I relate to others? In other words, and then he goes on to say famously, that kind of thinking creates a thicket of views that is nothing other than suffering. In the Buddha's Ball of Honey Sutta, he noted that all suffering stems from self-oriented comparative, how do I compare my, with others? So it's not particularly good for us at all. Task positive attention, on the other hand, when we're not thinking about ourselves, when we're actually focused on something external, and we're actually interacting with something in the present, whether we're doing the dishes or cooking or playing a musical instrument or engaged in gardening, uh, restores the neural circuits that allow for not only perspective-oriented thinking, but it overrides the activation of the amygdala. Uh, fMRI signals show conclusively that the medial circuits, the center circuits of the brain are reduced when we focus on external stimuli. When awareness is absorbed in external objects, when I'm focusing on what I'm doing, there's a thin layer of nerve cells. I don't know why I'm looking down. There's a thin layer of nerve cells that cap the thalamus and release GABA which is the brain's principal inhibitory neurotransmitter. And GABA is what's called self-annihilating. In other words, if you want ego transcendence, if you want to alleviate all of the stressful thoughts about why is it going wrong for me? What, you know, what do other people think about me? Uh, why, am, why does this person not like me? Why did this situation go wrong? The fastest way out is find something and pay attention to it. Find something and pay attention to it. Bottom-up associative pathways then guide intuitive-oriented behaviors. In other words, we stop having to think about what we're doing and we start simply doing and we follow intuitive skills that we've developed over time. The Buddha called this kind of thinking vitaka vikara, which is one of the wings to enlightenment. He says, vitaka vikara, what kind of thoughts are useful? And he answers, well, what right now is causing me stress? How do I let go of what I'm doing that causes stress? Um, but he emphasizes that it's not a personalizing type of thinking. It's simply looking from a distance, not taking it personally, what right now is causing suffering or stress, and then addressing it, and then fully 
engaging in a kagata, which is concentration on what you're doing. Interestingly enough, in uh, 20th century philosophy, the state of care, uh, engagement with the world, focusing away from ideation towards uh, intuitive-based action is also considered to be one of the, the ultimate goals of an authentic life. Uh, certainly, people ranging from Heidegger to Camus wrote a lot about it. So pop psychologists like Maslow, Seligman, uh, Jonathan Haidt, Sandra Leah Bomorski, uh, all interviewed individuals about the times they felt best and happiest in their life. But no one did this more than the great psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, a Hungarian uh, psychologist who noted that when people are really happy and uh, at peace and feel best about what they're doing in their life, there was this common positive state of consciousness that occurred. And in that state, actions and behaviors proceeded seamlessly from one movement to the next. Attention was maintained, but was not effortful, there was a complete and total absorption, and time passed very, very quickly. People could spend what felt like five minutes doing a task, and maybe two hours would pass because they were so absorbed in the task. And this um, effortless attention, or what Csikszentmihalyi called flow, occurred when we're not concerned about being evaluated by others, when we don't take the tasks personally. And this is why so many people experience flow when they're engaged in non-competitive tasks. So for example, you're far more likely to achieve a state of pleasant, effortless absorption where you are happier and far more at peace when you're engaging in pottery, which is why I chose the image for tonight's class, or strumming a guitar, or uh, doing a crossword puzzle, or uh, not, or a, a, a jigsaw puzzle, or uh, gardening or cooking, um, et cetera, et cetera. I used to think that people who would stare at their car engines and tinker with them for hours at end were imbeciles. Uh, and it turns out I was wrong because actually they're more likely to be in a state of flow than uh, anything else. Maslow said one of the keys to being truly authentic in, and in this heightened positive uh, transcendent state was that we enjoy each stage of the process, not the outcome. We, uh, many uh, psychologists today who employ the idea of flow and try to understand how people who do coding and stuff like that can achieve it, note that um, we focus most attention to tasks when to some degree they challenge our skill set. Uh, when we give ourselves a task that we're capable of, but are, is in some way challenging. So 
one of the things about flow is that unlike self-referential thought, which is fueled by cortisol, which we've already talked about how damaging it is with its essentially uh, diminishing immune function, its association with diabetes, arteriosclerosis, cancers, stomach disorders, and so forth, the sustainable states of flow actually are fueled by glutamate and acetylcholine. That's kind of interesting. Glutamate is an excitory neurotransmitter. It's like the fuel for the brain, but acetylcholine engages the parasympathetic nervous system, which relaxes us. So what's going on there? Well, it seems that to be in a state of flow, you have to be able to sustain attention on something, but your body has to be relaxed. So you're focused on something, but you're not tense, tight, and stressed out. Your body is relaxed. Your breath is going slowly. Your stomach is relaxed. You're, you're activating your vagal nerve. So in, your, in a really relaxed state, yet at the same time, you've got the fuel to sustain your attention. And so it turns out these two contrasting neurotransmitters are most at their, they're both at a closest thing we could call peak, the hours that we are most alert, which is generally not soon after we wake up and not towards the end of the day. So flow states are more attainable when somebody is in that late after, late morning time where they're not groggy, where they're you know, fully engaged, but it can go fully on to later in the day as well. Generally, flow states are most sustainable uh, starting at around 90 to two minutes to two hours, and they require uninterrupted focus. And this is where most people make it almost impossible today for them to attain states of flow, because the enemy of flow is not only self-referential thinking, but it's also distractions. Every time we get distracted by an email, a text message, an alert, somebody knocking on the door, it takes about 15 minutes to get back into a state of flow. And if you are distracted twice, within a half hour to 45 minutes, chances are you won't be able to get back into a state of flow. So all of that, all of the benefits will be essentially wiped out if you have a lot of distractions around you. So it's essential for flow, not only to set aside a bulk of time, at least an hour and a half to two hours, but to find a comfortable, quiet spot that's free of intrusions, turning off the phone, messages, email, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, turn it all off. Leave, put it so that we can't see what messages are coming into us. Start by becoming aware of and relaxing the body, and then choose a task that's familiar enough that we're confident, but then add a degree of challenge or novelty to the task. Now, why do we want to do that? Why do some psychologists say, say that uh, it's important that flow have a degree of challenge to it? Or, or uh, well, just like 
curiosity, which is another valuable motivation. Anything that's novel, challenging, or piques our curiosity actually leads to the secretion of dopamine. And dopamine is a reward neurotransmitter. It actually maintains and starts off a practice or a task with effortless intention. So when somebody is in that, you know, things that normally secrete dopamine like shopping or um, some people uh, find uh, flirting, sex, uh, dopamine secreting, there's people who find gambling or people who find other uh, reward activities. And that's the dopamine is what makes the attention easy to those tasks. But it turns out dopamine is also secreted whenever we're trying to figure out a puzzle, whenever we're simply focusing on something that we've have a degree of mastery, but we now need to develop a new skill in it. And dopamine is a terrific, terrific neurotransmitter to add into the uh, glutamate and the acetylcholine because that's also what makes it fun. That's what makes it really enjoyable. Acetylcholine and glutamate, while they're relaxing and build attention, they're not that much they're not that much fun, but you throw in the dopamine by making the task you're doing a little bit new or adding a bit of a challenge to it, then you find it really rewarding. So when I set aside time, for instance, to um, one of my favorite flow activities is composing music. In addition to studying psychology and Buddhism and college. I also minored in music composition, and I just love sitting at my music workstation and composing something, but I'll give myself a task. I won't just sit and create music. I'll give myself a little challenge working in a scale or in a time signature or something I haven't done before, and that always makes it that much more engaging, sticky, and rich. Awe also can induce states of flow. Awe demands attention to novelty, unpredictability, and complexity. So sometimes when people sit and they look up at a night sky or they look at a fantastic work of art or they look at a monumental uh, creation, when if you're uh, at Il Duomo, the uh, church in Florence, I think that's what it was, um, you might experience a state of awe, and awe secretes all of the same neurotransmitters. It's just as engaging, and awe keeps our focus externally. It reduces self-oriented uh, thought. So, uh, while in life, it's exceedingly beneficial to have altruistic purposes that um, help others, it turns out those who attain the most flow states score even higher on, in well-being and life satisfaction than people who focus on um, altruism, pure and simple. Kate Sweeney, 
a professor of psychology at I think it was the University of California. She did a survey of 5,000 people during quarantine. And she found out that those who tolerated lockdowns the best, and in fact came out of it uh, in some way fulfilled, were not the most optimistic, were not the ones who did the most altruistic work, but those who experienced regularly the most flow states. Those people or individuals, I should say, that um, really had tests that they could stop thinking about themselves and just do. That's why so many Americans spent months baking bread and doing puzzles during the pandemic. Two clinical psychologists, Ronald Pacala, and I can't remember the other one, noted that when subjects learn to develop focused flow states on neutral sensations or what is called flow, they reported feelings of rapturous joy, a profound sense of meaning, vivid imagery, and a differing processing of time. So of course, in addition to all these external task-oriented states of flow, we can also attain flow by focusing our attention on sensations that are internal, so long as they're not thoughts. In other words, paying attention to breath, to body sensations, to feelings arising and passing, paying attention to <clears throat> much like sitting and listening to sound can also engage in flow. In fact, a famous Harvard psych, uh, medical school psychologist, Sarah Lazar, did a beautiful study uh, with fMRI scans, and she showed that in, a little, in as little as two months of engaging in concentration practices, uh, we shrink the amygdala, the fear-centering process, and we strengthen the cingulate, which helps with attention. And that's why people invariably wound up feeling happier over the course of the two months they started a meditation practice. So it takes a while before that ideal dopamine, glutamate, acetylcholine, and GABA balance kicks in that extinguishes self-oriented thought, that effortlessly sustains attention, that's rewarding, and that relaxes our body. Uh, so at the beginning, it might require bringing our attention back again and again. So to for us to tonight try to attain a state of flow, we're going to be using the earliest teaching on transcendence and um, enlightenment practices by the Buddha, which is called the jhanas. The jhanas are altered state of concentration or meditation that lead to profoundly peaceful, relaxing states. And in the jhanas, the Buddha gave some very basic instructions. In the first, we, with an extremely relaxed but focused attention, we scan the body uh, and we evaluate the sensations of the body until we find a very pleasant sensation. It could be anywhere. You can note that, oh, the palms of my hands are pleasant. 
or my belly feels soft and relaxed, or my chest feels warm and open, or my, uh, my eyes feel settled and relaxed. When we find that, we're still doing what he called vitaka vikara. We're still doing a little bit of thinking because we're evaluating what sensation is really pleasant that we can pay attention to. And once we found that sensation, we let go of all tendencies to evaluate ourselves, to judge ourselves, to focus on our thoughts. And we simply focus our attention on spreading this ease and comfort through the body until we eventually attain this state of uh, transfixed absorption in just being present with the body. Now, for those of you that don't find awareness of the body that pleasant, that's, that's pleasant, we're also going to be at the same time for those doing it as a, a, a sound listening practice that also can induce a state of flow. So that's I think enough from me, enough talk. I hope that something in there was uh, remotely interesting. And now we're actually going to practice attaining a state of flow in a meditation. It's going to be a very simple, straightforward meditation. But the all the effort here is going to go, the relaxed effort is going to go into simply relaxing and soothing the body. So thanks for that. And find a really comfortable seated position. Just going to have a drink of water. <clears throat> and I'm going to close my eyes. i take off my glasses. I'm going to close my eyes. And I'm just going to reel in my attention from concerns about uh, anything other than what's happening right here and right now. taking a nice, full, complete in-breath, and then a very long, slow exhalation. And just beginning to become aware of internal sensations. In other words, find something that's happening in your body that only you could be aware of. Maybe it's a sensation of contact between the lower back and the chair, the buttocks and the thighs and the, the seat that you're resting upon. It could be uh, an awareness of just the energy moving up your torso as you breathe in and then being released as you breathe out, or it could be the sensation of air entering through the nose and then being released 
there's no right sensation or wrong. Just start to survey your body as if the sensations of your body were a vast night sky of lights flickering, but they're just little flickerings of sensation. So maybe there's some sensations associated with your feet resting on the ground, or maybe a slight twinge in the back or in the muscles of the neck or maybe you're aware of yourself swallowing or your eyes moving about behind closed eyelids. And here's where this early evaluating thought comes in. Just take a little time now and find allowing your mind to survey your body. See if you can locate an ongoing sensation that feels comfortable or soothing. Very often I find this behind my eyes, the palms of my hands. Sometimes if my belly is really soft and relaxed, I'll find it there. Other times just the slight swelling and release of the chest cavity. So find the area of sensations in your body that feel the most pleasant. Something that you feel you could also rest your attention on.
So if you found a sensation that is suitable for me, I would right now work with the sensations associated with my eyes, which feel very relaxed and settled. Whatever sensation that feels the most comfortable, it could be any place in your body for the next most important step we're just going to practice spreading this ease through the body like you're kneading water through dough through your suffusing ease through the body now, this could be done by simply relaxing any areas of the body that seem to contain or contract against, muscles that contract against other areas that are released. Or it could simply be with the breath, using your breath as you inhale, breathe into these soothing sensations. And then as you slowly without any force breathe out feel as you breathe out the flow or the ease spreading a little bit suffusing so my eyes on the in-breath I'd become more aware and then as I breathe out I'd spread it down to the cheekbones the back of the neck up maybe into the forehead now, for those of us that don't find this practice particularly easy, no worries. Just turn your attention to the sounds that are arriving and passing, releasing the shoulders, opening up the chest, softening the belly, and just fall into that state of hearing when we're present at a performance of beautiful, soothing music. We don't have to do any effort at all to get sounds. They just occur naturally. Sounds from people talking, cars, weather, breezes, wind, maybe sounds from appliances. Just receive and pay attention to the unending succession of auditory experience without any effort figuring out what's creating the sounds or whether the sounds are good or bad. Remove all the effort after a while to, for whichever practice you're doing, just relax and be with the experience. And if your mind wanders, that's okay. Every time you wake up and bring it back to your anchor, 
the sensation that you return to. It's a little version of waking up. So if your mind drifts 20 times, bring it back 21 times, and you'll have 21 little experiences of waking up, 21 little enlightenment moments. Enlightenment can be thought of as simply putting aside stressful preoccupations and returning to the actual world of sensations around us. And so now we'll sit quietly for a while.
if you attain a state where your mind is somewhat peaceful, you don't have to sustain after a while attention on just the pleasure of the experience. Just be aware of all now the sensations occurring from this state of ease. Don't put any more effort into keeping anything specifically. Just allow the mind to attend to every sensation that's actually occurring. The mind doesn't have to stay glued so long as it doesn't attach to thoughts, especially thoughts about oneself. Spend just a short more time in our practice. So when we're ready now, we can bring our attention back to the world around us by opening our eyes. And don't push away or be too quick to drop awareness of any internal body states that are pleasant. Try to keep them in the blend. 